0: Uh, as of yesterday, Pastor Richie's doing great. He, he's, he's on the upside, upswing of that, and his family's doing doing good as well. We uh, got some good reports this morning about other members of the Living Grace family who are also on the upswing uh, from their dealings with COVID. And we're going to continue to keep all of them in our prayers. I don't know who's comfortable with me saying what about their condition, so I'll just kind of keep that pretty vague But we will continue to to pray for them. And before we get started this morning, we are starting a new series. It's called Kingdom Conquered. We finished the Kingdom Character series. where We talked about those individuals that, that helped walk the nation of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. And now we are entering the promised land. We're going to start a book study of Joshua. So if you want to go ahead and open up Joshua, we will be there. And those of you paying attention two weeks ago, I also said that I did not want to talk about Joshua. And here we are. I had I had a plan, like there was you know divvying up like okay who's speaking about what part in Joshua And I'm like I want chapter two Joshua's not even in chapter two we're talking about Rahab no no God has a sense of humor and I get to talk about Joshua I will be calling him and the book Josh just because that's what how I refer to myself I apologize now I'm not being informal that's just my narcissism coming through and we're gonna be doing a book long study and when I say that like it. It may not hit you at first, but this is going to take a while, and that's okay. We're going to be going through this a you know, more, little more line by line, passage by passage, and that's a good thing. It's an expositional style of teaching, and there's benefits to that before you get wound up in the awake. How many months is this going to take? No idea. It takes as long as it takes because when we get in the, into that mountain, you start digging into it, you start finding gold, you take the time to start to get that, mo- that gold out of the mountain. And what uh, expositional teaching does, one of the benefits it has for us, is it creates a catalog of reference for personal study. You might be going along a year or two from now, and you're back in the book of Joshua, and you're like, well, what did we say? I remember somebody said something about this. And we go back to all of our teachings on Joshua, and you can reference each one of those to back up your personal study. It helps us to understand how to study the Bible ourselves. That way, we're not just bouncing around from topic to topic. You go to that little concordance in the back of your Bible, and you're like, oh, all the the verses on anxiety. That's where we're going. Uh, And some people, they do that whole, like, flip their Bible open, stick their finger in there and look at it and see, like, that's my reading for today. That's witchcraft. Please stop doing that. Um, We're going to go line by line because that's how we're meant to understand the Bible, the full counsel of God, not just henpecking and and picking the parts that we like or just keep going back to that same book that we're comfortable with. The full counsel of God. And it forces us to work through some of those parts that we might skip on our own. Like, especially in the Old Testament, they can start doing like genealogies and histories, and we're like, uh, boring, flip a few pages and move on. It forces us to work through those and see their importance and understand what's actually happening, what's being communicated with these hard-to-get-through spots. It's harder because we're more Western-minded and a lot less patient, but it's okay. We're going to break that. And today, what we're going to focus on is an overview, is an introduction to the book of Joshua. We're going to go over the whole book in a, in a day. And then we're going to go line by line through the rest of it throughout. This way we get a, like a 30,000-foot view of what Joshua's about and why it's important. Why is the book of Joshua important? Why was it important in the Old Testament when what was happening there? And why is it important to us as believers today? So Before we get into that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for a chance to get into it, a chance to understand it, and to know you better because of it. Uh, we pray that you'd help us to understand the importance of of the book of Joshua, how it not only applies to us, but what it meant originally, what it meant for them, what you were doing in this story. Uh, we lift up those members of the Living Grace family who are, who are dealing with illness, uh, some of them COVID, some of them not, and we, we pray your healing hand would continue to be on them and to see them through uh, this tough time. We thank you, Lord, specifically that uh, Pastor Richie and his family are on the upswing And doing better, we can't wait to have them back in services with us. We love you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. I feel weird introducing it like that, like like I'm Andy Coffin. We're about to go through the Great Gatsby. But uh, bear with me. That's a a joke that's older than I am. All right, cool. Chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Let me jump down to verse 9, where he kind of summarizes what he talks about in the middle part there. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Right off the bat, as soon as we get into the book of Joshua, Joshua is given a charge. He is given a commission to go and lead a nation. They've been following the same guy for 80 years. And now Joshua, this, this young buck at probably 80 years old, is taking the reins. And I don't, I don't know if you can imagine it. I cannot imagine following the same guy for 80 years. Like... I don't know if it's like the whole presidential cycle, like four to eight years and you're done and that I've gotten used to and accustomed to. And I kind of like it. I cannot imagine having a president for 80 years. It would, uh, it, it would do something to the mind. And then you go to switch to a whole new guy. And you're like, I don't even know if I trust this dude. I've built up such a rapport with the old guy. I can't, I can't move on. But Joshua is given a charge and he assumes command of the nation. And then he gets to work. Joshua is, is not his original name. We, uh, we see back in Numbers 13, right before Moses sends out the spies, that Joshua had his name changed. It was Hoshea, and now it's Joshua. And name changes in, in the Bible are very important because they're an indicator. They, they indicate to us some quality of the individual's character or their role in the coming narrative. So like Abram... Became Abraham, you got Jacob, he becomes Israel, which just means wrestles with God because he wrestled with God. We got Joshua, he was Hoshea, becomes Joshua, and that name means Yahweh is salvation. And that name is important, especially for this narrative and for where they're going, because they're going into battle. They are invading enemy territory to claim it as their own. And the person leading them in, the name leading them in is not victorious in battle. It's not great with a spear. It's Yahweh is salvation. One of the things that tells us is who's doing the work. This is not Joshua doing the work, leading the people and winning the battles. This is Yahweh. This is God doing the work. And another thing it tells us on this side of history, maybe not necessarily them there, but we can see this as this story is not just about invading a promised land and occupying territory and winning military battles. This is about salvation. Yahweh is salvation, points to what this is foretelling. Spoiler alert, it's Jesus. What we see in this, this portion of Joshua, this is the first of four movements in the book. And in this movement, Joshua's taking on the mantle of command, and he's becoming the new Moses. And in uh, Deuteronomy 18, we'll backtrack there for a little bit, turn back a couple pages. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, Moses is talking to the people and he gives, he gives a, a prophecy and he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Moses is saying, hey, somebody else is coming and we can look at this, I'll get on this side of history and go, oh, well, that's Jesus. Obviously, he's talking about Jesus. Also, yes, he is talking about Jesus, but he is letting them know, hey, guys, I'm old. Somebody else is going to be taken over. It's kind of preparing the people for Joshua's assumption of command. And when he's talking about Joshua here, Joshua partially fulfills this. Jesus is the later greater fulfillment of this, much like what happened in the garden when God's like gives a promise to Eve about her seed and what's going to happen. Well, Cain is a partial fulfillment, and then he kind of fell, that fell apart. And then Seth was a partial fulfillment. And then Noah later was thought to be the fulfillment. That's why his name meant rest. He's going to give us rest from all of our toil and work from this curse. And he kind of did, and that rest is at the bottom of the ocean for most of those folks. So there's all these partial fulfillments that Jesus then becomes the later, greater fulfillment of. Same goes for Joshua and his prophecy in Deuteronomy 18. So Joshua is that prophet. We, we know he's a prophet because he's a mediator between God and men, and he's working miracles. So he's fulfilling that office, and he's a mediator between the God and the people for, for moral and for civil leadership. He's dealing with all their moral failings left and right and sideways because they're the nation of Israel. And this wouldn't be us reading the Old Testament if we weren't going, just shaking our head at Israel. Like, how could you? And the Bible's just shaking its head right back at us, going, it's you. This is a mirror, guys. We, we are Israel. So he mediates between God and people for moral and for civil leadership. And then the Bible goes through in this book and, and kind of step by step shows you how Josh is becoming the new Moses. And in the first chapter, it's the Torah. God says, hey, don't let this, this word, this law, leave your mouth. Focus on this. Meditate on this. Make this your life. Adhere to, hold fast to what is written. And in chapter 2, Joshua sends out spies, just like Moses did. Josh is a little more hush-hush about it because he saw how well that went last time. Handles it a little bit differently. Good job, Josh. And then in chapter 3, the whole nation of Israel crosses a body of water, just like Moses did in the Red Sea. Joshua and the nation of Israel cross the Jordan River. God peels back the water and says, all right, everybody through, come on. And he lets it go. And then in chapter five, a really interesting thing happens and Joshua gets a burning bush moment. There's there's a guy just kind of standing there at a spot. And I imagine in my head, like there's a bunch of Israelites who see this big, scary dude holding a a drawn sword, not like even, even in a sheath, but sword out, like ready to do something. And they're like, hey, Joshua, go get him and Josh goes out there real carefully and, and addresses the guys hey uh are you for us or are you for our enemies and the guy he addresses just says no I don't know about you but as a Josh I can I can let you know that I would panic like that is not a calming answer I asked you are you for us or are you for them and you said no that's like when my wife says well what do you feel like tonight burgers or pizza and I say yes Real clear answers, real clear answers here. So he says, are you for us? Or are you for our adversaries? And in Joshua 5, verse 14, here's the answer that this individual gives. He says, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And just right there, that's the coolest statement you could make. That's the kind of statement you make if you're one of those guys who walks away from explosions and doesn't look behind you at them. You're just, you're just too cool, too cool. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. That's a statement that says, I came here to kick butt and chew bubble gum and I'm all out of gum. And then Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. That's the burning bush all over again. Moses sees a burning bush, goes over and has a conversation with a bush And the bush tells him, hey, take your shoes off where you're standing is holy. And he does it. It's the same thing here. He's the new Moses. Another thing that happens is Joshua falls on his face and worships this this individual and is not corrected. And if you compare this to like the book of Revelation, John falls on his face and goes to worship angels. And angels are like, no, 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 no. What are you doing? Get up. We We don't do that here. We're on the even playing field. We're both subservient to God. There's God and then there's us. He's worthy of worship, we are not. So he worships this being without being corrected. And that that says a lot. That says that this is not just some angel. This is this is God himself. This is this is a theophany as the scholars would tell you. It's Jesus pre-incarnate showing up. And one of the things this does, if you didn't catch it with Josh's name going in in chapter 1, which is a more subtle push. This is very direct, very obvious in your face that this is a paradigm shift. The, the account, this account of the history of Israel is not about Israel. It's not about Joshua. It's about God doing the work. When he says, I am giving this land to you, like he said here in chapter 1, like he said back when he, they first sent the spies in Numbers, when he says that, He's doing the work. He is giving them the land. So it's not about Joshua. It's not about Israel. It's about God. And what God is doing is he's installing Joshua as the new Moses. And by doing that, we see that God is gracious to give them a quality leader to follow and to give them the land. God is revealing an attribute, his graciousness, generosity, loving kindness. And then in the second movement of of the book of Joshua, we see a juxtaposition of two battles. We see Jericho and Ai. And these are are two, two of the first battles in Israel's holy war. And from these, we can glean that faithful obedience equals victorious inheritance. Faithful obedience equals victorious inheritance. Because the first fight goes great. They show up. They do some weird stuff out of obedience and God shows up, tears down walls, battle's done, they win. Awesome. The second battle doesn't go too well. They lose. Their second battle and everybody's like, whoa, whoa, panic time. What, What happened? Why is this different? Why did God abandon us? And we realize then that the covetousness of one person doomed all of them to suffer the consequences of sin. One guy. By the name of Achan, we know in Joshua chapter 7. One guy by the name of Achan, he sees some stuff that he wants, some gold, some idols, and just kind of gathers it up and goes in his tent and like hides it under a mat. I just imagine like a real like obvious lump in the mat. Like everybody knows this is where we keep the idols. And his covetousness doomed them all to suffer the, the consequences. So in Joshua chapter 7 verse 1, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, it's a really long last name, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And we jump down to verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned they have transgressed my covenant that i commanded them they have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings therefore the people of israel cannot stand before their enemies they turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction i will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you the devoted things is interesting And, and the concept of this, this, this phrase, the devoted things, is first introduced in chapter 2. And it's not by an Israelite. It's by Rahab the prostitute in Jericho. She says, we know you guys are going to just devote everything to destruction. And she can say that because, one, they've heard stories. Rumors have spread. People know who Israel is. They know about Yahweh, and they know what happens. But they've done this before. They've devoted other kings and kingdoms to destruction. The other reason she can say that is because it's not a new concept. In ancient Near Eastern cultures, this happens with other cultures besides Israel. The difference with Israel is they only do it within the borders primarily of the promised land. They don't go out and like spread and dominate as an empirical assignment. They just kind of keep it to the promised land. So scholars call this term, this devoted to destruction, they call it uh, the ban. And they have a command to devote everything to destruction. All of these things are banned for Israel. They can't have them, they can't touch them, can't take them. They devote them to destruction as an offering to God. And this ban gets ignored. It gets disobeyed and dismissed. And then they get to see the terrible price of sin. Israel gets to see that they are not exempt from these consequences and this price for sin. Like you go into the land thinking, okay, we are part of God's plan here to purge the land of Evil. They've been told, coming up to this point in Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 12, if you want to do some homework, that they are purging Canaan and that this is God's justice poured out on the peoples of the land for their moral corruption and their child sacrifice. And Israel shows up as God's instrument of wrath on sin. But because of their disobedience, they now become victims of that wrath, of that holy war. those who violate the ban become part of the ban themselves. So then Joshua and the Israelites, they they consecrate themselves. They get right before God. They purge the the evil stuff from among them. They get rid of Achan and all of his his lump under the mat. It's gone. They purge it. And in the back on the right page, they consecrate themselves. And you see victory at Ai post-repentance. And the main idea that we grab from that is that everything hinges On the word of God and the willingness of its hearers to believe and obey. Everything that happens in the book of Joshua for the Israelites hinges on their willingness to believe and obey the word of God. And this is also a continuation of a theme you see in Joshua of the holiness of God. It's a theme you see of his redemptive plan. Part of his redemptive plan is this purging but it's offering an opportunity for those nations to see and repent because God opens up this international covenant. His covenant with Israel is now open for more to come to it because Rahab gets in and her family, and then a a group of people called the Gibeonites after this will come in and be included and protected under that covenant. So God is fulfilling a promise to Abraham to bless all nations through him and his seed. And we see the, the start of that fulfillment right here. And then there's victory over about 14 other regional kings. But you only see God's miraculous work in the southern portion, which is really interesting. It, it's it kind of like you, you look back to what we talked about with Caleb a couple of weeks ago. It's like maybe, maybe God just liked Caleb. Like, Caleb, that's my guy right there. He's got a different spirit. We'll give him a little, little, little extra something. But I'm not sure. That may just be me. And what we see in the battles with the inhabitants of Canaan is that God is mighty to win victories on behalf of his people, win victories for them. And without him, they cannot. And we see that their faithful obedience to his word brings a victorious inheritance. And the third movement, this is the often skipped portion. One of the things we talked about coming into this is one of those areas, it's the division of the land. So they stop and say, okay, this tribe, you get this much land, and here are your boundaries and borders and all of that. Goes to this family, this family, this family, this family. And we just kind of see that. And then like our eyes get droopy and we skip a few pages to pick ourselves back up. It, it's often skipped just like the genealogies, especially even in the New Testament. But this is a fulfillment of God's promises. This is God proving his faithfulness. He says, I have said this and I will do it. And he does. And he gets, gives the promised land to them to occupy. And each one of the tribes has a space for them, just like they were told they would. And this is a fulfillment of God's promises all the way back to like Genesis 12 and 15 to Abraham. Israel can now occupy the land in an already not yet state. It's an already not yet state because they they can occupy it. They've won it. They've been given the land, but there's still people to fight in the land. There's still pockets of occupiers and people to contend with in the land. And it's a divine gift won by the Lord and now they must occupy it. So we're going to jump over to Joshua 13, verse 1. It says, Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years. I love it when the Bible does that. <laughs> I never want to like attribute that that obvious statement to God. I always want to go back to the narrator who decided like, God said this, so I'm going to justify it before God says that it's true. We we get it, man. He's old. He's advanced in years. God can state facts just as well as you. You are old and advanced in years and there remains yet very much land to possess. And if we hop down to verse six to kind of summarize, because he's listing here all the people groups that are there. God says, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel, only allot the land of Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. There are still people and places to conquer within the promised land, within this new nation of Israel. There's pockets of occupiers to contend with. But the people of Israel get a period of rest for more. And what we'll see as they as they take over the land, as they continue to occupy it and fill it, that they proper Use of it and the possession of the whole land is a fundamental means of worship, an obedient response to the covenant. This is an act of worship. Occupying this land is obedience and it's worship. And we see in the division of the land that God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to his word. And in the final movement, the fourth movement of the book of Joshua, we get, two speeches and a renewed covenant. In these speeches, Joshua turns on to the people the commission that God put on him. God told Joshua in the beginning, "Hey, hang on to the word, hang on to the law, hold fast to it and be strong and courageous." And Joshua in these speeches turns around and does the same thing to Israel and says, "Be very strong. Be courageous. Hold tight to the law. Don't turn to the left or the right. I've mixed those up, but that's okay. Either one is bad. Hold tight to the law. Be strong and be very strong. And he, he urges them to remember. That's something they've been doing this entire time as they've been going through the land. They've been setting up these, these monuments, these memorial sites and altars to remind them of what God did there. They get across the Jordan, boom, memorial. God got us across. God brought us into the promised land. They take down big cities. Boom, monument. Remember, they get up on top of mountains and they set up monuments of cursing and blessing because God told them to out of of obedience. And those themselves remind them of the nature of God and the nature of their covenant. And so at the end of these speeches, Joshua brings out another big stone, rolls it out there and says, boom, this is a witness of what you guys have agreed to. This is a witness that Israel says they are going to follow the covenant of God. They're going to occupy the land, and they're going to live up to the law. And it reminds them that it was God who drove their enemies out from before them. And then Joshua chapter 24, verse 29, Joshua gets an attaboy. Joshua gets a, a pat on the back, and it's real subtle, it's, It says, after these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. And there's his attaboy. And if you didn't see it, what I want you to do is kind of keep a finger there and then go back to Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. It says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, and he says it. So you see there, kind of compare and contrast, there's a label that God gives, a special label, the servant of the Lord. It's a label that God gave to Moses for Moses' obedience, for his faithfulness, for walking with God. He's called the servant of the Lord. And then in Joshua 24, Joshua, at the end of all he's done is called the servant of the Lord. And that's wonderful. And it's wonderful because I can look at this from this side of the New Testament and go, "I, I get that. This is what Jesus said. This is what we would say, well done, good and faithful servant to. Well done, good and faithful servant. This is Joshua's attaboy. And it's the exact opposite of getting to to the gates and Jesus saying, I never knew you. Get away from me. No, this is well done, good and faithful. I know you. Enter into your master's rest. Joshua is a model leader. For the nation of Israel, his period of command anticipates the best kings of Israel's future. Even after the the land divides and it's Israel and Judah, Joshua still anticipates the best leaders of both of those. And he's not perfect. The Bible is is very intentional about showing us the flaws of every main character throughout their narratives, except for one. Only, Only one guy makes it out clean and that's Jesus. Even Joshua messes up. The Gibeonites story will indicate that to us when we get into that later. But this book, it bears his name, says Joshua, but it's not about Joshua. It's not a story about Joshua or how great a leader he is. This is not some leadership principle manifesto, although many of our our Christian leadership gurus will will treat the Bible as such. This is not something to go through and just pluck out those little, little principles. You can glean some leadership principles from it, but it's not the, the intent. This part of Israel's history is about how God is faithful, God is mighty, God is gracious. Every movement of the book of Joshua exhibits these facets of God's character. And this is about Jesus. We talked about the theophany earlier. We talked about his name, Yahweh, is salvation. Jesus is the Greek version of Joshua's name. Yahweh is salvation. So if we take this and look at it through the lens of this points us and foretells Jesus, what we see is that Jesus is the holy warrior who fights for the people of God. Jesus himself then becomes a victim of the holy war against sin and receives God's justice poured out on sin. The Israelites coming in and occupying and and wiping out nations, these little city-states and the people groups, devoting them to destruction. That was God's wrath poured out on sin. What Jesus did on the cross for us was God's wrath poured out on sin. And then Jesus wins the battle. That is the battle against sin. He wins the battle and we are invited to participate and occupy. We're we're invited to a lifelong engagement in struggle against sin and evil in in part of an already not yet state. He's won the battle for us. And now we get to occupy in an already not yet state. Now, I want, I want to kind of shift gears a little bit. There's a, we have a tendency to look at stories like this, and look at like the battle of Jericho and, and battle of AI, and then immediately try to apply them to ourselves and apply them to our personal struggles. And this is not how to tear down the Jerichos in your life. That's, that's not why this is, exists for us. This points us to God's character, his nature, and this points us to Jesus. It's not about our, our personal struggles, our, what we call our our battles. Later on in 2 Corinthians 4.17, if you want to look that up this week, more homework, Paul calls those those battles, our personal struggles, the storms of our lives, he calls those light and momentary afflictions. Not to be compared with the future glory we're going into. Not to be compared with what Jesus did for us and won for us, light and momentary. And it's, it's hard right now in the midst of COVID, at people on ventilators, people dying, and then the economy is where it's at, and then protests everywhere. It's hard to look at this and go, this is light and momentary afflictions. But it is. So the Bible tells us that it is. Our, our, our health struggles, our financial struggles, our, our personal relationship issues, light and momentary afflictions. Our personal battles, our light, momentary afflictions. But when we keep calling them like our, this is, this is, my, this is my battle. This is the, my, the storm in my life. We're elevating our struggle into something that it's not. Uh, elevating it, try to, try to put it on par with the battle that Jesus has already won. The battle is won. It's done. And now it's on us to occupy the land. But the battle is won. There will be struggles. There's still occupiers to contend with. But the battle itself is won. The book of Joshua ends with an unstated question. And the question is, what are they gonna do? It ends Joshua dies at 110 years old. And then all the elders that were with him along the way, who saw what God did, they died too. And Israel is left without living monuments to point them back to the God who got them into the land, who gave the land to them. Without those living monuments to point them back, all they got is these big rocks. And are those gonna be enough? They're left with the question, what is Israel going to do? Just like them, we're left with the question, what are we going to do? What are you going to do? Are you going to allow the deep-rooted sin and darkness in your soul to keep its footholds in its fortified places? Will you be like Israel who allowed the banned things, the things meant to be devoted to destruction, to remain in residence? You're going to let them live there, rent free. It doesn't end well for the people of Israel. It only takes flipping a few more pages into Judges to see what happens. It, things go south. Us, like them, we will be dragged away from a life devoted to God into the worship of idols. You might say, well, I don't worship idols. I don't go bow before statues. Anything can be an idol. Money, family, relationships, and acceptance, your job. Anything can be an idol. And our our poor, small, human affections can be steered away so easily to the end end state of coming before our Lord and Him saying, I never knew you. Versus, well done, good and faithful servant. Or will you contend for your soul? Will we take up the fight Will you work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Will you, will you take up arms against deeper wounds of, of sin and the gnarled roots of, of darkness and the evil, the wickedness that the Bible says our heart is full of? Will you allow it to occupy or will you contend for your soul? Will you follow the Lord into battle, into sanctification, to clearing it all out, to being separated as, as, as holy is what sanctified means? Will you declare war on that which keeps you in shame and stand in Christ as more than a conqueror? Will you become a living sacrifice laying down those sinful occupiers of your heart on the altar of God as a spiritual act of worship? Will you contend to occupy that freedom and holiness that Christ purchased for you in his blood? That is our call. That is the question we are left with today. At the end of this, seeing all that God has done, seeing who God is in his grace, his faithfulness, his might. What are we going to do? As we, as we close, if, if any of you have questions about your soul, need prayer, I'll, I'll be up here. But I want us to walk out of here with that question. It's a heavy question, but it is one that we need to wrestle with and come to terms with. Come with an answer to what are we going to do? How will we occupy what Christ has already purchased in us, for us? Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for a chance to look at the book of Joshua and to see you in it, to see who you are, you're gracious, you're faithful, you're mighty. We thank you for winning the battle, for, for Jesus purchasing for us what we could not freedom from sin, for him taking the punishment, the wrath on sin for us. Thank you for his perfect life. Thank you for his atoning, substitutionary death, his resurrection. Lord, we, we would be nothing without these things, without you winning the battle for us and giving us our purchased freedom. So we thank you for that, Lord. As we walk out of here, we pray that you would continue to challenge our hearts with the question, what are you going to do? And may we contend for our souls and contend to remove those leftovers, those occupiers, those things that don't belong there and do not shine to glorify you. We continue to lift up our, our brothers and sisters and the Living Grace family and all across the the, the global church who are are suffering right now from, from COVID, from persecution. We pray that they would have the same mindset, that these are light and momentary afflictions not to be compared with what you have done for us, what you have accomplished for us and the glory that will be revealed in us later. We trust you in all of these things. We love you, Father. We walk out of here more passionate for you and what you're going to accomplish in us and through us this week. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 All right. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you guys for coming. We'll see you next week.